Welcome back to the AWB COVID-19 Employer Resources Webinar Series, presented by Primera Blue Cross. Today, AWB President Chris Johnson is talking about insurance claims, risk management, business interruption coverage, and telehealth policy updates as they relate to COVID-19. He's joined by Chris Lawrence, Sales Director with Propel Insurance, Kenton Brine, President with the Northwest Insurance Council, Harold Kim, President with the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, and Vicki Kennedy, Assistant Director of Insurance Services with the Washington State Department of Labor and Industries. With a quick word from Rick Abbott, Vice President of Product and Market Solutions at Primera Blue Cross. The webinar will begin after this word from our sponsor. What we do now will forever change our tomorrow. So let's do the right thing today. Let's stay at home. Let's wash up. Let's always keep our distance, please, six feet apart at least. Let's look after ourselves as well as others. It will all be worth it. We can all do our part so those on the front line can do their part. And when this is over, we will all continue to thrive. Good morning and welcome back to our weekly webinar series. Chris Johnson, President of the Association of Washington Business. Well, if April showers will bring May flowers. I think the weather this weekend told us we're in for a longer period of showers. But hopefully this week we're going to warm up and it's going to be a nice, great, and warm week. Uh, let me welcome you all back to this weekly series and again recognize and thank for Primera for being in our corner as they're in your corner. Uh, and if we didn't have great support from companies like Primera, we couldn't bring this important content to you. So today I'm joined by Rick Abbott. Rick is the Vice President of Product and Market Solutions for Primera Blue Cross. Uh, from his office to our office or from his home to our home, welcome aboard, Rick. I'll turn it over to you to say a few words. Thank you so much. And to reiterate, we're really honored to be sponsoring this AWB webinar series. And I wanted to take a minute to remind everyone about all of the telehealth options that you have available while we weather this COVID-19 crisis. Traditional providers have moved really quickly in our community to transfer from a brick and mortar setting into a telehealth environment. Just last month, we saw over 70,000 claims from our local partners in Washington showing how quickly they've been able to adapt to this truly unique environment. Primera Blue Cross also, on behalf of our members, have added multiple virtual care options throughout uh, all access points. On the medical side, we've partnered for text-based care with 98.6, a local Seattle company, and Doctor on Demand, who provides video-based access to care as well, alongside Teladoc, who we've always had as a benefit. Also, behavioral health is critically important in this moment. Many of us are socially isolated. Some people are struggling with substance use disorder. We wanted to provide telehealth options for them as well. So we partnered not only with Doctor On Demand, but Boulder Care for opiate use disorder treatment and Work at Health for alcohol use disorder treatment as well. I want to remind everyone that there are no member cost shares to seek this treatment through June 30th. And you can find a lot of information about what might be right for you and your members on Primera.com. So we're going to continue to look for ways to support our community as we all go through this together uh, through this time of need. So again, thank you so much for allowing us to sponsor, and I'll pass it back to you, Chris. Thank you, Rick, and thank you for that message. Uh, I just want to highlight Premier is really leading by example relative to being engaged in local communities throughout the state of Washington, whether it's rural, or rural, urban, or suburban communities. Your your commitment to healthcare professionals and all is certainly be applauded. So, Rick, thank you for being with us today. We have a special uh, two-hour webinar today. The first hour is featuring insurance and insurance claims and discussions just about all things related to the insurance sector for you. 
We'll make a five-minute break at the top of the hour and switch to financial assistance programs from the federal level and state level and have some unique guests also joining us from Facebook and Mainvest regarding how to build resiliency, raise capital, and maintain operations. So again, another jam-packed uh, webinar series for you this week. Again, thank you for joining us from your living rooms and offices uh, as we get started today. We have an outstanding lineup of speakers with us this morning. They are Chris Lawrence, the sales director for Propel Insurance, Kenton Brine, president of the Northwest Insurance Council, Harold Kim, president of the U.S. Chamber Institute for Legal Reform, and Vicki Kennedy, the assistant director of insurance services for the Washington State Department of Labor and Industries. We've, as usual, we've already received a number of questions from you as you've logged on this morning. And just a reminder, the best way to ask questions to our panelists is to go to that right-hand corner of your screen. Go to that GoToMeeting box, insert your question there, and let us know who you're asking it for. And if you missed a part of today's program or you want to share something that you heard today uh, with your friends, colleagues, uh, and coworkers, a reminder that we do put this online afterwards today, and you have an ability to share the audio link with us, with your friends. So this will also be uh, streamed again on the AWB Facebook page as well. So without further ado, let me go to Chris Lawrence from Propel Insurance. Uh, and I'd like to turn it over to you, Chris. Chris is the sales director at Propel Insurance. Chris, welcome to the weekly AWB webinar series. Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you, Chris, um, and thank you, AWB, for the forum. It's it's a wonderful way to get the word out, and we're kind of all in this together, certainly. So, um, want to share with you some of uh, the thoughts that we've put down, and hope that um, this provides kind of a footprint for you as you think about insurance and risk management. This is definitely uncharted waters and uh, everyone is learning as we go. So to start, I would like to first say, please do engage your insurance professionals. We have kind of a unique window into this world in that we have a lot of different resources for our clients to access from various insurance companies to different vendors. And we see a very broad spectrum of the business owners out there dealing with all of these questions. And so with our engagement with them, we can share and learn as we go. So definitely do reach out to your insurance agent or broker that you work with and see what they can bring to your risk management. Um, first and foremost, you should be reviewing your insurance policies. Um, many of you have changed your operations, um, maybe halted your operations altogether. Maybe you, know, you were once making our favorite um, beer, now you're doing hand sanitizer. Maybe you're doing a lot more delivery. There's things that you're doing now that you didn't contemplate when you set your insurance up. So please do share what you are doing and anticipating doing with your insurance professionals so that they can make sure your policy morphs with you and that you don't create more problems. And certainly if you've reduced exposures, there may be some areas of premium savings uh, to think about. Um, and also there are many carriers uh, creating different payment options. They're all trying to be pretty accommodating. So make sure you're utilizing those tools. 
Next slide. So these are the different policies that kind of come, come to mind. I could talk on this for two hours, but seven minutes, here we go. Um, your property policies do have warranties and safeguards built into them. So you wanna make sure that those warranties and safeguards your policy has, you still comply with. Think about a sprinkler system. It has to be in good working order, has to be maintained. Every property policy has vacancy clauses and each carrier defines vacancy a little differently. So make sure you understand the period of time when um, your building can sit vacant before coverage starts getting reduced. Um, general liability, this is again, if you're making hand sanitizer where once you were making beer, you, you want to make sure your policy can adjust to that. Um, many of you sign contracts that require certain insurance provisions and we recommend that before you consider changing any coverage, you make sure you're still in compliance with those contracts. Management liability, this is employment related practices, directors and officers type coverage. This is an area we strongly feel we'll see quite a bit of litigation as, as we roll through the COVID-19 situation. So if you have these policies, fully understand the claims reporting procedure. They are very unique to any other policy. And make sure you understand what triggers a claim, when to turn in a claim, and how to turn in a claim. And if you don't currently have these type of policies, talk to your insurance professional you can still get them. There may be a few more hurdles to go over, but we do encourage you to bolster your coverage and risk management by adding on these uh, coverages. Pollution liability is a unique policy form. It may have special language that is a little broader when it comes to viruses and pollutants. So um, if you have those policies, definitely engage that policy. Next slide. So cyber, that is becoming a, a really big deal in this day of all of us working from home. So we're using technology more than we ever did before. Laptops have been deployed. We're using our own devices. These policies have very unique coverage components. And again, you want to make sure it is now meeting today's exposures and needs versus what we were doing six months ago. So make sure that if you have special security requirements to trigger coverage, that you know what those are and you're amending this either in your operation or in your policy to adhere to what you're doing today. And crime policies are also never more important. We're, we're seeing a, a lot of claims coming in through uh, cyber activity because everybody's online and we're in an environment we're not really used to. So it just is ripe for more havoc along this uh, line. Social engineering, make sure you're training your people to not click on the link. Next slide. Business interruption, the hot topic, right? And I know Kenton's gonna talk a little bit more about this, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time but I highly encourage everyone to keep very good records. Consider contracting with a forensic accountant 
Um, it, it's not going to be a simple claim. So forensic accountants are, are uniquely qualified to help you determine what that is. Turning a claim regardless of whether you think there's coverage or not. We want the carriers to look at your claim, your policy, every policy is unique. This does a couple things for you. It memorializes your claim, but it also provides proof of denial down the road. We do believe there may be other avenues for you to recoup, and you may have to prove that yes, you bought business interruption, and yes, you had a denial. Um, next slide. So risk management considerations. Think, think short term, but also long term. This is a good time to build your contingency plan. We're learning a lot of things in this environment. Identify a workplace coordinator. They're in charge of all things COVID. Think of your facilities in a unique way. How is that building reacting not being used? Are you still running your HVA system? Are you running your water systems? Don't let your water go idle. Um, what security measures are going on at the building? Um, who has access, who doesn't? Who is disinfecting? All of those things. When you open your buildings back up, how are you going to get your people in and out of the building? Are you using elevators? What does that look like? Next slide. Technology, touched on this a little bit, but update your policies and procedures. What does work remote look like for your firm? Um, I talked a little bit about bring your own device. What security measures need to happen at home um, that your firm may not have control over? When you're using Zoom and other web-based uh, uh, seminar platforms, make sure your security is up to date and that you're not, um, you can't be photobombed. We've had a few instances of that and that's very disturbing, right? Fleets have unique risks as well. Next slide. So you're getting ready to open up or you're thinking about it. The CDC has come out with four basic pillars of what that needs to look like. You do have to implement a cleaning and disinfecting procedure and it needs to follow the CDC guidelines. So make sure whatever you're doing, either internally or you're contracting this out, that it is in writing that you are following these guidelines. These are things you're going to have to demonstrate that you adhered to down the road if we do see the litigation that we, we anticipate. Social distancing, so as your people come in, they do still have to adhere to social distancing. So that means physical barriers, it means six feet apart, all those measures we've now learned about need to be implemented in the workplace. And shy of not getting that done, then you do have to have your uh, face masks and your PPE. So you'll need uh, a source for that equipment. Next slide. Um, you do need to have a, a sick worker policy and procedure. So we probably all have these. They just need to be updated in today's environment. Active screening uh, as employees come in, that can be a voluntary screening process, a question and answer scenario to temperature taking. Um, same with client contact and customers coming and going. There needs to be a screening process. 
and you need to be able to promote stay at home if you're not feeling well. How do we deal with you once you become sick or not feeling well at work? So those are the things that now need to be updated in our policies and procedures as we come back to work. And the fourth thing is we must educate our employees and you must do so um, around workplace hazard awareness and that includes COVID-19. So signs and symptoms, prevention, hand washing etiquette, respiratory etiquette, what does all that look like? It's a lot to put on the plate, but somebody needs to probably be in charge of it. They can work with their, your HR directors and the various department directors, but have somebody that's your go-to person. Next slide. So that, that's it for us, and we, we hope everybody reaches out to their insurance professionals and, and grab those resources. We have a lot to share. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. That was, that was exceptional. A lot to take in there. Uh, a number of questions are coming in. We're, we're going to get a chance to get to one question and then ask you to hold on till the end of the program. Maybe the first question I'd ask you is, is there one new additional product that companies should be thinking about adding? If they could only add one, or if there's something you wanted to leave them thinking about one area of exposure or opportunity, what would be that one area? Uh, if they don't have employment-related practices liability, they should add that, and then cyber being the other hot topic right now. Great. Uh, thank you, Chris, for all your hard work. Thank you for Propel for joining us today as well. Stay tuned, Chris. We'll come back to you on Q&A on the back end. Up next is Kenton Bryan, president of the Northwest Insurance Council. Kenton, thank you for joining us today. I'm going to turn the program over to you. Thank you very much, Chris, uh, and thank you to the Association of Washington Business for hosting this uh, webinar today. Uh, hello out there to all the folks uh, who are uh, working on the front lines. Uh, if, if your businesses are open, I'm glad to hear that. If you're currently not open, I'm along with you wishing for the day when, it, uh, when our economy gets back to normal and, and your business is up and running. Um, uh, my name is Kenton Bryan, and I'm with the Northwest Insurance Council. I'll talk a little bit about us in just a second. I just wanted to open up by saying uh, the topics I'd like to cover for you today, a little bit about the, uh, as, uh, as Chris uh, Lawrence called it, the hot topic of the day, the business interruption issue. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about what insurers are covering and how they're trying to serve policyholders in the current environment, and uh, try to cover a little bit of ground about what we think is next for insurers and business owners. Next slide, please. So the Northwest Insurance Council, in case you haven't heard of us, we've been around in one form or another since the 1960s. Uh, we were a long time the Washington Insurance Council and then expanded into Oregon and Idaho about a decade ago. Uh, we are a nonprofit insurer-supported organization. We exist to provide information about home, auto, and business insurance uh, to policyholders and policymakers uh, and uh, the media and consumers out there in all three of our states. Um, we do this through a number of, uh, of means. We issue news releases. We provide fact sheets and issue briefs. Um, we are online. We uh, do social media. Uh, and we uh, recently became an advocacy organization, uh, much like AWB and other organizations. We uh, advocate on behalf of insurance companies, uh, home auto and business insurance. We're not in the health insurance or life insurance line, so we just work on uh, property casualty issues. Uh, we work in partnership with our member companies and our national and state trade association partners around the country. 
uh, and uh, and we do our best to uh, provide information for uh, the folks who are buying insurance products, whether that's on the personal line side uh, or in the case of business insurance on the commercial line side. So you can find us online at www.northwinchnwinsurance.org. That's there in case you need to follow up or look for more information. Uh, feel free to check us out there. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, next slide, please. So uh, let's talk just for a moment about the business interruption coverage issue and debate. Um, I have a disclaimer there at the top that says the language of the policy determines the coverage. This is a really important thing to conceptualize because um, there are uh, a lot of arguments going on currently across the country, both at the state level and at the federal level, about what business interruption policies cover and don't cover. And these are very generalized statements. And so the things that I'll talk about here today um, are, are in typical and general terms. Uh, and as Chris uh, Lawrence mentioned, the uh, policy really dictates uh, whether or not you have coverage, and it's the language of the policy that matters. And policies vary from company to company and from policy to policy. Uh, just because you have the same insurance carrier as uh, uh, Brand X down the street doesn't mean your policies are worded the same. Uh, those are often negotiated contracts that the broker or agent works out with you and the carrier. They're specific to your business needs, and that language may vary. So when I say a policy doesn't cover this or that, uh, it may not generally cover that. It may cover it in your circumstance. So I think I would like to begin by thanking uh, Chris for her comments and, and reiterate that the most important thing that you can do is read and understand your insurance policy and go over it with your insurance professional, whether that's someone from the company or your own independent agent or broker. Uh, it's a good idea to review those policies, even in the midst of what's going on right now. Uh, and it's a good idea to consider whether or not you need to file a claim. And, and even if that means your claim is going to be denied, it may be helpful down the road. Now, having said that, it's also, I think I want to mention that um, at least as this began to unfold, there was some talk that uh, that filing a claim might delay your interactions with like the Small Business Administration because they would, if you'd file the claim, you would have to get that claim denied before you could seek assistance. I don't know if that's true in the with the uh, the trillions of dollars that have been put out by the federal government in both terms of small business loans and grants uh, in the CARES package and so forth that have come out um, in the in the last few weeks. Uh, and I think that the overriding uh, takeaway is that you should contact your insurance professional if you believe you have a claim. You should review the language of your policy because that will determine whether or not you have coverage. So when you hear uh, that policies don't cover um, business interruption due to virus, there's a couple reasons for that. One is that the um, that policies for business interruption typically are related to a physical loss that occurs on the insured property. Business interruption coverage is considered a property-related uh, coverage. It's not a liability policy, for example, that covers uh, something that happens to a person while, while at your business. Uh, it's obviously not a workers' comp coverage that covers injuries to personnel at your business. This is a property uh, a policy that covers damage, physical damage, and a physical loss to your business, like a fire or theft or windstorm or a gas line explosion or something along those lines. Uh, and as such, the threat of a virus is not typically considered physical damage to the property. Uh, similarly, uh, although a lot of people began to think, well, if the government forces my business to close, that's civil authority and that's, that's a covered loss. 
that has traditionally been viewed by insurers as meaning the civil authority has closed your business because your business has suffered damage that they believe uh, like the, you, you know, you've made temporary repairs to the roof that caved in, but they don't think it's safe to open your business yet. Uh, that's the kind of loss that that typically contemplates. But again, the language of the policy is going to determine whether or not that holds true. And then finally, the virus exclusion itself, which appears in most uh, policies, uh, certainly since, um, you know, the uh, around 2000, uh, 2005, the era of the SARS epidemic. Um, that language is uh, quite specific and specifically excludes viruses, bacteria, uh, and other uh, pandemics or microorganisms that re result in a pandemic. Uh, and that language appears in a lot of policies, as I've noted. So the, the question is, uh, if my policy doesn't have that language in it, does that improve my uh, opportunity for a claim? And it's really going to depend on how the rest of the language of your policy reads. So, but that's the, the those are kind of the reasons why insurers they certainly, uh, if if the language isn't as specific as it as uh, they wanted it to be, it's certainly the case that insurers have been looking to uh, limit their exposure for pandemics, viruses, and so forth, because it's a costly, uh, difficult to insure kind of event. And I'll talk a bit about that in a moment. Um, one one principal point I want to make here is the last point on the slide here is that policyholders who currently are, have purchased business interruption coverage, and not all businesses do, uh, about 30 to 40 percent of businesses uh, buy this coverage on average. Uh, but if they have a virus exclusion, that means they have not paid any premium to cover a virus. That's an important distinction because a lot of times what you hear said, I've even seen some Facebook advertising from uh, plaintiffs uh, law firms suggesting that you pay a lot for your business insurance coverage, so this uh, ought to pay out now that you need it. Well, it's not exactly the way it works. You you pay out a lot of uh, for specific things in the policy that are covered by the policy, and the and the price that you pay for that coverage is uh, is included in your premium and has been considered part of the risk. What some of these firms are asking for is a retroactive change in the policy to cover something that wasn't contemplated and you didn't pay for if you have a virus exclusion. If you don't have a virus exclusion, if viruses are specifically included in your policy, uh, I can tell you that your policy would be a great deal more expensive than it is today. Uh, one example I heard recently is that, uh, you know, Wimbledon tennis tournament has been canceled and they have a, an event cancellation policy and they will uh, receive insurance money from their policy because that event was canceled. But they pay about $2 million a year for that coverage. Uh, and they would not pay as much for that coverage if uh, viruses were excluded. So that's just an example of, of you know, one, one particular event. But uh, overall, I think you'll see that uh, viruses, if they were included, would make the cost of the policy prohibitive for a lot more businesses. Next slide, please. Uh, so that leads to the question of why not retroactively require insurers to pay this coverage because businesses need uh, and, and they're not forthcoming uh, necessarily in amounts that are uh, as helpful as needed from the federal government yet. Uh, there are uh, legislators who have looked at this issue. There have been bills introduced in, I think, six states uh, so far, six or seven states. Looks like my slide said seven. Um, and some members of Congress have also called for uh, a retroactive rewriting of insurance policies. 
there are a couple of key reasons why this is not uh, favored by insurers. First of all, it would be counterproductive and uh, arguably unconstitutional. Uh, Article 1, the Contracts Clause of Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution, forbids is, is written in a way that is intended to forbid states from retroactively rewriting contracts. And I would suggest that as business owners out there, uh, it would be chilling for all of you to have the state uh, government step in and rewrite uh, private contracts between businesses and their and their constituents. Uh, if they can do it to us, they can do it to everyone. And I'm not sure that's something that we all want to contemplate. Uh, secondly, it would be, frankly, financially devastating for insurance companies and the people that we serve would be at risk if we uh, see our surpluses dwindle down to nothing. Um, as you see in the charts that are on the slide, currently or a, a month ago, um, insurers had a surplus to, in total, all property casual insurers of about $847 billion. That's already dropped by about $80 billion uh, due to uh, losses in the area, payouts in the areas of uh, natural disasters and also loss of investment income due to the falling stock market. Um, and as you can see in the chart on the right, estimates range for covering the cost of uh, a monthly cost for uh, covering business interruption claims for lost uh, business income would range between $150 million a month and $380 million billion a month, which means that the entirety of the insurance industry surplus could be gone in as little as two months. Uh, by comparison, uh, all natural disasters that occurred in the United States that were insured losses uh, totaled about $52 billion for the entire year in 2018. The two largest losses, insured losses uh, that we're aware of um, were Hurricane Katrina in 2005. That was about $45 billion. And of course, 9-11 uh, 2001 was about a $40 billion insured loss. So those, those are dwarfed by the catastrophic scale of what would occur if uh, the business interruption were uh, rewritten retroactively and insurers had to cover that cost. And again, I'll note, it, it, is covering, it would be covering a loss that premium has not been paid to cover. So I wanted to mention that again. Next slide, please. So what are insurance companies doing? Well, as uh, Chris mentioned, uh, carriers are doing what they can. Uh, to reach out to policyholders. Uh, in some cases, they've done this voluntarily. In some cases, they've been ordered by individual state regulators, both here in Washington and across the country, uh, to take certain specific actions to protect policyholders. Those things include, uh, we're not canceling policies for non-payment of premium. We're allowing grace periods, uh, offering refunds. Of about, I think about $11 billion so far have been offered uh, by insurers to their policyholders. We're extending coverage for the commercial use of personal vehicles, for, for example, restaurants that are now in the delivery takeout business instead of the sit down and dine business, uh, and making policy changes and endorsements for different business uses of existing insured properties. Uh, and also acknowledging uh, delays at driver licensing offices that are closed around the state uh, and continuing to provide coverage even when those licenses are, are expired. Next slide, please. Uh, what's next for insurers? I think the answer is uh, it's kind of wait and see in a lot of areas. I think the big issues that are coming up are, um, you know, insurers are have joined with business uh, organizations from around the country in supporting a business and employee continuity and recovery fund that we'd like to see targeted specifically to businesses and employers to help uh, make up the losses that are occurring currently. 
there is talk about a TRIA-like federal backstop. Uh, it makes it easier to ensure uh, large-scale disasters like this if insurers know there's a limit to how much will have to be paid out, regardless of the size of the pandemic, and the federal government will step in at that point. Uh, but those are really early discussions at this time. I think the next big issue for businesses that are reopening is about liability immunity. And I think that will need to be handled at a federal level because individual states will find it hard, especially for businesses that operate across state lines, to have the rules be different uh, from one state to another. In Olympia, of course, we're seeing the governor's order extend through the end of May uh, with uh, a gradual reopening in four phases um, between now and the end of May, and that may be extended even further. Um, we're not hearing anything about a special session currently, even though there's been a precipitous drop in state revenues, uh, and that may force some kind of action by the legislature. Uh, and again, liability immunity will remain a significant issue uh, here in Washington state as well as across the country. In the marketplace, I would not anticipate uh, a lot of activity around fixing uh, policies uh, for the immediate term. I think that discussions about how to add language to policies may come you know, nobody's going to write a, a, a fire policy while your building's on fire. So it's unlikely that you'll see large scale changes in how policies are written until after this pandemic subsides. But I know there is talk in the industry about offering these coverages if there's a way to do it. The question is, there's no point in offering the coverage if no one could afford it. So it'll be a, a key discussion about how to make that an affordable product. Uh, and uh, um, Again, I think the in impact on insurers' financial health is a really critical issue here uh, as we look to continue to provide coverage for all the promises that insurers make. Uh, we have to be careful not to overextend and pay for things that aren't covered under the policy. Final slide, please. Uh, I welcome anyone to contact us at the address above or contact me by email or phone if I, we can ever provide any additional information. Your best first resource is your own insurer and or your insurance professional. I encourage you to reach out to them as well. Thank you all very much for the opportunity to speak with you, and I'll take any questions if I can. Thank you, Kenton. Kenton, that was exceptional. Uh, I think really builds nicely off what uh, Chris shared with us from Propel Insurance here this morning. Uh, please hold for the end, if you would, for questions and answers. A lot of content so far this morning, and we've got two more great speakers to get to before we get to your questions here this morning. Up next is Harold Kim. Uh, Harold is the president and leads the Institute for Legal Reform at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in Washington, D.C. Harold, thanks for being with us this morning. Let me turn it over to you. Thank you, Chris, and thanks a lot for having me. And greetings to everyone from your nation's capital. I'm Harold Kim. I'm with the U.S. Chamber's Institute for Legal Reform, and you're going to hear a little later from my colleague Neil Bradley about some other work that the Chamber is doing, but I thought I would start out by telling you a little bit about ILR or the Institute. We've been around for a little over 20 years now, and our primary focus is to bring a little more sanity to the way lawsuits are driven here in this country. Class action lawsuits, mass tort lawsuits, securities litigation, and I've been at this game for a number of years, and I have not seen the level of concern that I'm seeing right now when it comes to the explosion, others say tidal wave, of litigation that could flow in the wake of this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, we've seen some early litigation already filed. I think there is a case tracker by Hunton and Williams, and if you go on their website, I think it's close to 800 lawsuits filed on a number of causes of action. And we only think that this is the tip of the iceberg because there's going to be a whole lot more litigation because I will tell you that our friends in the plaintiff's bar are circling. Just over the course of the past few weeks, we've seen an uptick in advertising 
from television ads to social media to client advisories. They're getting organized, they're getting prepared, and as Mitch McConnell calls it, uh, a complete bonanza of litigation that we can anticipate, and hence the reason why there are elevated voices of concern. And frankly, this is not just about businesses. These are entities like charities or schools and churches that face enormous potential liability challenges across a wide array of industries, sectors, uh, again, nonprofits. And so this is something that has really bubbled up here in Washington. Uh, policymakers are talking about it. The administration is talking about it as well as throughout the states. And this is really connected to the question of how do we get to an economic, economic recovery if there's gonna be a flood of litigation for a small business, one lawsuit can mean a bankruptcy for you. And we've seen, unfortunately, many of these types of cases, whether it's in California, to New York, to Florida. And so the litigation concerns are very, very significant and something that we are trying to get out ahead of in terms of pursuing solutions at many different levels. As Kenton mentioned, there is considerable attention here in Washington, and I will start with that. Uh, the Senate is going to gavel in this week, and the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, senior senator from Kentucky, has drawn a red line in the sand, basically telling his colleagues on the Democratic side of the aisle that if we want additional funding as part of this phase four package, there has to be liability protections that accompany that. Uh, the Democrats are posturing. Obviously, you know that the House majority is controlled by Nancy Pelosi, and the trial lawyers have a significant amount of influence when it comes to their reach in Congress, but frankly, also at the state level. We do know that governors in blue states, including Illinois and New York and Michigan, they have issued executive orders or even passed legislation that would extend some liability protections. But this is something that is really starting to bubble up on the national scale. Let me tell you a little more about the areas of concern that we are focused on. I think the big ticket item is gonna be exposure claims. These are claims that could be brought by employees against employers that you didn't take reasonable precautions to prevent exposure to the coronavirus. But it goes beyond that. It goes to customers, it goes to third parties that visit any business establishment. And we think that there should be federal legislation on a national scale that creates a safe harbor for protections for those companies, those businesses, other organizations that follow CDC guidelines and or state and local guidance so that they have this type of protection, which will give them the certainty that they're not gonna be on the receiving end of a class action lawsuit because again, the plaintiff lawyers are mobilizing. The second major area would cover product liability. Many companies are repurposing their manufacturing processes to manufacture hand sanitizer. Uh, whether you're a distillery in Kentucky or a microbrewery outside of Seattle, uh, these are all things that the American business community is stepping up to do and there should be associated liability protections that could be pursued at the federal level. The third major area is medical liability protections. The front lines of this pandemic are healthcare workers, our hospitals, our doctors, our nurses. There has been bipartisan support for extending this type of protection. And we think it should be uniform across the board when it comes to what Congress can do. And then the fourth area of concern, which is uniquely in the federal arena, is the influx of securities class action lawsuits that we're gonna see. Uh, we all know that the stock market has taken a brutal hit and there's been a number of 
price stock drops over the course of the last several weeks. And as part of that, we know that enterprise and class action securities lawyers are going to be looking to pursue class action security lawsuits saying that a company didn't take adequate precautions or they responded in a way that depressed the stock price. And so we have a number of important initiatives current, currently underway. Uh, we are definitely engaged with uh, the Hill, with our allies there. Uh, it is high in terms of a priority for the administration and something that is critically important if we're going to have a path forward to get our economy up and running again. Uh, one final point on the state stuff. Uh, state legislatures are starting to move on liability reforms. Uh, the state of North Carolina just recently passed some reforms that would address exposure claims but also liability protections. I mentioned the executive orders from some of the governors that we've seen in the course of the past several weeks, but more and more will bubble up. And I think that this is a real acknowledgement that this is a serious issue. It should not be a partisan issue and that there are timely targeted and important reforms that could be pursued so that we can get this country back, back to work. So with that, Chris, I will uh, stop there. Hey, Harold, this is a really important conversation uh, in so many buckets, like you mentioned, whether it's manufacturers who repurposed on PP&E or as employers thinking about bringing employees and customers back uh, to the work environment. How is, what would be your recommendation? How should employers best be engaged in this conversation with you and others? So if you're talking to an employer at home and you said, hey, I've got one thing for you to do. This is what I would ask you to do after you've heard this conversation today. What would that be? Well, for starters, if you are going to engage in the public policy process, we would ask you to reach out to us because we need to hear as many small business voices to come out as to why these reforms are important. In fact, we're coming out with a poll this week that is going to show that a vast majority of Americans believe that there should be liability protections uh, for businesses. And it's important to have your voices out there, whether it's in the state capitals, whether it's in Washington, they need to hear from you. And I think it's important, really, really important that it is a groundswell of concern because we're certainly hearing it. But as Congress gets back to work, they need to start hearing it from every corner of this country. Uh, thank you, Harold. I, I would remind our listenership that Amy Anderson on our team leads our federal affairs activity. And I know would would like to hear from you if you think this is an important issue for your company. Uh, she can certainly help us and help you connect with Harold and his team at the Institute for Legal Reform. Harold, stay with us if you would. We'll come back to some more questions here at the end of the hour. Thank you very much. Uh, up next is Vicki Kennedy. She is with the Department of Labor and Industries and is the Assistant Director of Insurance Services. Vicki, thank you for joining us this morning. I'm going to turn it over to you. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate this um, opportunity to provide a brief overview of what we're seeing in the workers' compensation system. Um, first slide, please. So, first of all, just uh, just a general picture of what we're seeing in the workers' compensation claims area. Um, this is data as of a week ago last Friday. So during last week, we received a little more than 100 additional claims. Um, when you add up the various status numbers, you'll get to the total number of claims in the first two bullets. One of the things that's important to point out is we're accepting claims for exposure to COVID-19. The individual workers do not necessarily have to contract the disease in order for us to have an allowable claim. Uh, we decided early on that we were going to allow claims for the quarantine period, um, particularly uh, in cases where the employer is not able to keep workers on salary. 
Um, so the good news is of those claims, the 371 that are allowed and closed were most likely for the quarantine period only in order for those to be closed so quickly. Um, we have a very small number of rejected claims at this point. Most of those are duplicates, but we expect more as the, um, uh, as the areas or the industries where these claims are coming from begins to expand. Um, sadly, we have had our first couple of fatalities that are either allowed or under uh, consideration. Next slide, please. So speaking of the different industries these claims are coming from, um, about 80% so far are from the healthcare industry, and only 5%, which is a little surprising to me, are from first responders. We do have an additional 5% that are coming from retirement or similar uh, facilities or centers. And uh, so altogether, that gets us to about 90%. The other 10% are spaced out among a whole variety of industries. Um, one of the things I think is important to note is, is beyond industries like healthcare, where it's pretty obvious that there uh, is a likely nexus of the employment to the virus, um, most claims for communicable diseases are not likely to be allowed uh, most, uh, for most of the industries. And what our claims people look at are those three bullets that are listed there as the criteria um, that we look at on a case-by-case -case basis for each claim. When you consider those criteria, I think it's pretty clear why first responders in healthcare are uh, likely to qualify, particularly when you, when you compare those to the first and the third bullets. Um, I think folks have, have gotten a bit confused about whether we are providing presumptive coverage for healthcare and first responders. We are not, um, but it, there's an assumption of the likelihood of the nexus to employment based on those criteria that we use. Next slide, please. Uh, one of the things that the COVID-19 pandemic has caused us to do is really look at our existing telehealth policies. We have allowed telehealth or telemedicine for a number of years for things like consultations, pharmacological management, uh, psychotherapy, psychiatric evaluations, um, but we really needed to look at these policies overall on a temporary basis to try to get injured workers as much access to medical care as possible. So this is the list of those telehealth policies that have been changed or expanded at least through July 3rd. It is the date of the current temporary policy expirations. Um, these, these expanded policies are going to give us an opportunity though to really look at and consider which changes make sense on a permanent basis. For example, I think in some ways we've been a little behind in not allowing the injured workers um, home to be an originating site for, uh, for telehealth. We are allowing that currently, and I wouldn't be surprised to see that become a permanent policy. Uh, another one though that I think will require a lot of analysis is allowing initially evaluations or the filing of a, of a claim um, via telehealth. We have historically required an actual physical visit of the worker to an emergency room or to a qualified medical provider when 
when the medical provider needs to give us the opinion about whether the worker's condition um, really is clearly connected to that injury or occupational disease. But all of these are up for some consideration as we see what happens over the next couple of months with those policies in place. Next slide, please. So despite these policies, we do still see some delays in treatment. Um, we see workers with underlying health conditions that mean they really don't want to visit a, a doctor's office and the telehealth policies may not provide them enough flexibility to deal with what their particular issues are. Uh, we certainly see certain independent medical examinations that don't lend themselves to telehealth. Um, so we anticipate some increase in claim duration just given those factors that we're dealing with right now. I think the question we hear the most of relates to transitional light duty during the workers' recovery. Uh, many employers are quite creative and innovative. We congratulate them for that in developing uh, light duty work while a worker is receiving medical treatment and continuing to heal. Um, but under the law, when those jobs go away and the worker is still in recovery, they go back on time loss benefits unless the employer is in a position to keep them on salary. Um, we look at those facts, of course, on a case-by-case -case basis. There's some workers that aren't in a different um, part of the claim process where it may be an appropriate to the unemployment system, but light duty generally means a return to, um, to time loss benefits. Next slide. We have a couple of important options for employers that I, I think your members need to know about. Um, first of all, we've had an employer assistance program for a number of years to provide assistance to employers when, when it's difficult for them financially to pay their premiums. There were several requirements employers needed to meet in order to qualify for the uh, employer assistance program. We've relaxed a number of those and if if employers find it difficult to pay their workers' compensation premiums, um, we encourage them to look into whether the, this program might be available to them. Um, another important factor to, to know about is that claims for COVID-19, the ones that I showed uh, on the first slide, are not going to be used as we calculate employers' experience factors for future premium rates or in retrospective rating adjustments. And that's for, uh, it for me. I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, in addition, here are the COVID-19 resources on our website. We add to them periodically and I encourage members to take a look there if they have Thank you, Vicki, for that update. Uh, I'm just gonna give all of our speakers a heads up. We're gonna do a lightning round questions and answers. We have four minutes, so here we go. Let's see if we can get through a couple of them. Vicki, the first question's for you. and it, comes from an employer asking, uh, how will an employee prove they got COVID-19 from their workplace versus somewhere else? Because LNI's new process asks the employee to identify where the incident happened at. So the, um, that, of course, for some uh, industries is going to be pretty easy. Uh, if you're in healthcare and you're treating someone who obviously has the disease, you're likely to have that, um, that confirmation. We're not asking for anything that is detailed documentation, but something very reasonable um, to make that connection to employment. 
I think for many other industries, it, it may be quite difficult. Um, and that's, that's why my early comments that for certain industries, it is not likely that a communicable disease claim would be allowed. Thank you, Vicki. Uh, Harold, a uh, question coming in is, what piece of advice would you give to us from a liability protection piece as we bring employees and customers into our workplace? Well, I think that you definitely want to take a look at the CDC guidelines or state and local guidelines that are dictating how essential businesses currently, like the grocery store down the street, you know, they, uh, they're definitely focused on social distancing and sneeze guards and, you know, hand sanitizers, but it's constantly evolving as we learn more about the coronavirus and something that I would definitely encourage folks to take a look at, especially uh, for the non-essential businesses across the country that are looking to re-engage and to restart. Thank you, Harold. Uh, the next question going to Chris Lawrence, and this is coming in in a number of different ways, Chris. Uh, are there common uh, themes among the initial set of claims that you're seeing coming from employers now in this new COVID environment? Most of the conversations right now are around the business interruption coverage because a lot of policies include some form of business interruption, so it kind of stands out and just its title alone uh, makes you think that this should trigger coverage. Um, we've talked about the hurdles to that, uh, so there's a lot of activi activity around that. We're, we're encouraging our clients to turn in those claims regardless of what uh, we think the end result will be. Um, but the next wave, as others have mentioned, is in the litigation around the employer-employee environment. Um, did the employer do everything they needed to to keep everyone safe? And that is very fluid, which means it's fraught with peril. Thank you, Chris. Uh, last question going to Kenton. Kenton, you talked about probably a moving and changing landscape in the uh, insurance policy front. How will insurers be communicating that to their customers about change in policy? I think what we'll see, uh, what we've seen so far is that insurers are um, are, are working to inform their policyholders uh, on a in a broad sense uh, by doing you know social media and. Uh, advertising, but when it comes time to making changes to actual policies or providing dividends or re or uh, refunds and so forth, those things are going to be communicated directly to policyholders. Uh, I, I think that, again, I've stated it a, a couple times on other issues. Uh, I think that if you are a, a an insured policyholder and you have questions about, are, is your company going to make changes to policies or am I entitled to some kind of uh, refund or deduction? Uh, work with your company or your insurance professional, your independent agent, to find out more about what might be coming your way. Thank you, Kenton. Uh, again, to Kenton and Vicki and Chris and Harold, exceptional content today. Really a lot to digest, but really important information to digest. A reminder, we'll have a link of this webinar uh, online uh, tomorrow morning. It's running on our Facebook page as well. Thank you to those four great speakers. We'll see you next week. Have a safe and happy week. Thanks for listening. Our next Employer Resources webinar is a week from today, on May 11th. To register for this or any of our upcoming webinars, go to awb.org and click on Events.